This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Deep State Radio, one of our one-on-one discussions, this one with one of our friends, one of the originators of Deep State Radio, David Sanger uh, of the New York Times. David, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, We're at the end of a crazy busy week. Uh, And let me start with something that seems so long ago that it's almost ancient history, Um, and that's the decision by the Trump administration to withdraw from the INF Treaty, which on Monday, way back then when we were recording our episodes, uh, we had a pretty lively discussion about because it seemed to everybody who was on the pod, which was Steve Walt, uh, uh, Rosa, Corey, um, uh, Ed, and I, uh, that it seemed like a terrible idea. But I didn't want you to miss out on the fun. What, yeah, what, joy. What, um, what, what, what a lot of joy. Well, just a little bit back on the sort of journalism of all this. So we broke this story, as you know, uh, the previous Friday. And the White House spent a lot of time uh, trying to convince us that no presidential decision had been made. It hadn't even been briefed up to the president yet. You know, we were jumping the gun. <clears throat> Clearly, they did not want Vladimir Putin to read about this in The New York Times before uh, John Bolton got to Moscow, where he was going to uh, break this happy news to him. You mean before he heard about it on the president's cell phone? Some, or that, one of the two, right? Um, although presumably the president isn't spending his precious cell phone time discussing the INF treaty when he has so many more important things to discuss with his friends. Um, so uh, we were pretty persuaded they were getting ready to do this because we knew they were briefing the allies about what they were preparing to do. And we went with the story. And of course, what happens on Saturday, the president's at a rally in Nevada He talks to a bunch of reporters as he's getting back onto his helicopter. Somebody asks him about our story on the IMF. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I've made that decision. You know, we're not going to be in any treaty that that the Russians are violating. And, you know, I wish it wasn't this way. And it doesn't help us against the Chinese. So basically, the White House was trying to make the argument the president hadn't even been briefed on it, certainly hadn't made a decision. And 24 hours later, he told everybody he had already made a decision tells you a little bit of something about dealing with this White House, doesn't it? Um, well, you've had that experience before. This is I the- have, but this was a particularly blatant version of it. So, yeah. Um, so let, let's get to the merits. So um, I've read the arguments about why it's a terrible idea, and the best put argument actually belongs to George Schultz, who's written an op-ed uh, that appeared in The Times today. He's 95 or 96, and all I can say, David, is I hope you and I are writing pieces that are that lucid when we're 95 or 96. I'm, I'm hoping to get there by then. But Yes, that's right. Um, so um, uh, the argument against it is that the way you deal with a treaty that is and a treaty structure that is clearly failing, like this one, is that you reinvigorate it and you expand it. In other words, you bring in other players, in this case, the Chinese. Um, That was essentially the same argument that was made about how President Trump should have dealt with the Iran Treaty, which was not a treaty, I'm sorry, the Iran Agreement. Not that he should have scrapped it, but rather that he should have renegotiated it and 
again try to enlarge it. Um, that's not the way this White House rolls. And uh, their uh, best idea with these things is scrap them so that if there is a replacement, you can call it a, a Trump treaty. I have some sympathy for the president's concerns about this treaty. President Obama nearly left it uh, because the Russians were in violation of it. And the Chinese were never signatories and never even involved in the negotiations in 1987 because nobody ever thought of them as a serious player in the missile field 30 years ago. But today, most of China's fleet actually is of missiles that fit within the categories banned by the INF Treaty. And the, the thought that they are ever going to sign on to this is a complete fantasy. So I'm not entirely sure that it's a mistake to blow it up if you've got a plan about what you're going to replace it with. That's what I haven't heard from this administration. Well, the other problem with it is that there are merits of it on its own and there are merits of it in context. And you can look at it and say, well, they're pulling out of the INF treaty, just like they pulled out of the Paris Accords, TPP, UN agencies, NAFTA. NAFTA, which ultimately right. is getting replaced. Right. And but, the Iran but the, deal. Right, right. And the Iran deal. And 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 the point is they they don't like international agreements. And when they find international agreements they don't like, they typically just say, let's get out. They don't try to fix them. And that's, that's right. This is and, a and, and they for the and they so anger the allies along the way that the allies aren't willing to sit down with them and think about how to fix them. Right. And so and so in that you know I mean you can look at it in the context of the INF treaty. You can look at it in, in the context of kind of the war on the international order. And there's a third third lens to look at it in the world of um, of arms control. We only have really two significant arms control, two or three significant arms control agreements rolling, right? Uh, we've got the original Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. That doesn't put any restrictions on us because we were a declared nuclear power. We have the INF Treaty, which is gone or about to be. And then in February of 2021, one month after the next presidential inauguration, the New START Treaty, the main treaty that reduces the uh, United States and Soviet arsenals to 1,550 missiles uh, each, um, goes expires unless President Trump and President Putin decide to go to a five-year extension on it. That's what's called for in the treaty. So far, there's no motion in that direction. And one of the concerns that a lot of people have is not simply that he's abandoning the INF Treaty, uh, which people have a hard time getting that upset about, but that it's a prelude to getting out of uh, the New START Treaty, at which point the old arms race could be back. Right. And, and there's a flip side of that, which is not just we don't have many arms control agreements. By the way, we, we, we did have one with Iran, too, right? We we don't have many arms. Arm that wasn't an arms control agreement. That was a nuclear production agreement. Since Iran didn't actually have any nuclear weapons. Okay, but the consequence was obviously not. To yes, get to obviously. Weapons, yes, right. But but the point is, that's one way to look at. It. The other way to look at it is, if you're in the arms business, and you want to modernize your nuclear fleet, uh, you know, it's it's not necessarily a bad thing to remove these constraints, right? 
That, that, that's right. And, and uh, there are some people in the arms business who would love to see that happen. And there's, this is also a particularly big regional issue. So um, the people who want to counter the Chinese in the region say, by removing these restraints, we can at least counter, counter uh, China's buildup along the coast. And that buildup is intended, at least in part, to keep the United States and the Navy at bay. The um, other way to go look at that is that um, the military tends to dislike tactical nuclear weapons. They're hard to protect. They don't necessarily want to go be investing a lot of money into those. And so there are many in the Pentagon who would prefer to keep things like the INF Treaty around. It's hard to do that, though, and make a case for doing it when the Russians are violating it. Well, also, but the president's on the record saying he kind of likes small nukes. He wants little little nukes he can use. Uh, yeah, he has at various points mused about that. I, I'm not sure how serious he's been about that because I'm not sure that he he actually knows very much about the difference between small nukes and large nukes. Uh, but the, I think it's overall true that he certainly feels like he wants the United States to advertise that it's got the biggest, most powerful military. And at various points, he's questioned, why do we observe these limits on the number of weapons we can have? Don't we want to have the biggest arsenal out there? Huge. We, huge. We, huge. We want a huge arsenal. All right, well, let's get to the other thing that I touched upon there, since it's in uh, your realm, uh, which is all things cyber, um, in addition to all things national security. Um, the president of the United States ran for office saying how awful Hillary Clinton was and how she put America at risk when, as secretary of state, she apparently um, had a private email server and a couple of bits of uh, or some number of bits of classified information may have ended up on that email server or in her uh, you know, email exchanges. Um, and he ran on this and then he was told, you know, when you become president, you can't use uh, an unsecure phone, an insecure phone, because uh, other people will listen in on you, and you're the president, uh, and uh, you know, uh, kind of top of the food chain. People really want to know what you're saying, and he said, "Oh, Peshaw, I don't really care." And now it's turned out, according to reporting by uh, the New York Times, that the Chinese and maybe the Russians and presumably lots of other people are listening in on the president's phone. Because he just seems to have shrugged off this whole idea of security. And I'm wondering how serious people should take that. Well, I think you should take it pretty seriously, both uh, about his unwillingness to take on the warning and the ease at which the Russians, the Chinese and others can do this. Uh, this was great reporting by my colleagues, uh, Matt Rosenberg and Maggie Haberman. Um, so a few things about this. First of all, it's no secret he's been using a cell phone. If you look around photographs of him in the White House, released by the White House, you'll frequently see one of his two phones lying around, you know, on a table or this or that. Uh, one of them is just used for Twitter and so forth. I noticed he was tweeting at 3 a.m. Uh, the other night. Um, last night, 2.48 no, a.m. last night. You, I don't know about you, David, but my general view is, any tweet you do at three in the morning probably is a bad idea. 
Yes. I don't I, care what the topic is, right? Yeah. Okay. So that's number one. Number two is um, how easy is it to get into a cell phone? That depends entirely on what kind of conversation is taking place and whose network it's running over. So the most secure part, if you're on, a, for example, on an iPhone, is to do iPhone to iPhone. You're not out in the public networks. You're over Apple's completely encrypted network. That would be, you know, among the safer. Using an app like Signal is very good because um, that that app fully encrypts end to end. The president also can't legally do that because you can't follow the Presidential Records Act, which is supposed to indicate what every phone call was and so forth, which is one of the reasons people want him to run through the normal White House rules. And of course, this president being this president, he doesn't want to do it. What's the riskiest way to use a cell phone? It's through a network overseas that includes an overseas switch where the phone company is basically wholly owned by the government. So if you're going through a Chinese switch, a Russian switch, any other kind of authoritarian government, even a Singaporean switch over Singapore Telecom, you're going over a switch that the government essentially can control. And that's their moment to go up and get inside, at least to figure out who you're talking to, and perhaps, depending on the technology, to be able to listen to the conversation itself. And that's the riskiest part. And that's what really has the security officials so unhappy. The other thing is those fun little apps that you put on your phone. We don't know how many of them he's got on his phone, but frequently those apps can get into the core area of the phone and assist uh, a foreign power in tapping into the phone. So the whole thing is just a plain old bad idea. And when you think, what was the core of Hillary Clinton's bad action? It was that she was using a home computer over a home network that a foreign power could easily break into. It's essentially the same problem that President Trump has run into here. Well, except she wasn't the president. Uh, and uh, No, she was the Secretary of State, though, at the time. Yeah, no, it's, it's understandable. But apparently, according to the story, what they did was they identified who he was talking to and who had influence over him. And then they went after those people to try to influence the president. Yeah, you wouldn't think you'd have to go to all that trouble for this president, would you? That, uh, you know, usually he's pretty open about, you know, what his views are and who he's talking to about these things. But yes, that's exactly what they were doing. They were mapping a group of presidential influencers, which foreign governments have done for years about presidents, right? They've always tried to find people they were close to. It's just the president himself was leading them right to them. Um, yeah, well, it's it's, you know, to, to, to say it's ironic is 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 to understate it. It's kind of it's kind of flagrant. Right. It's kind well, of the best part is the president was told this when he came into office. He's still doing it. He f tweeted out after the story appeared that the New York Times had run a very boring story about him, which is exactly the phrase he used about that detailed deconstruction of his taxes. Um, these two stories were what many things, but boring they were not, right? And uh, I, I'm betting that he's unembarrassable on this, that, that they are not taking those two phones away from him. Well, I think when he says boring, you know, what he means is, complicated and requires using your brain. And I think he doesn't think people do that. 
and that the reason they like him is that he's kind of entertaining. And, it, and, and he's willing to be entertaining no matter what it takes, no matter what he says. And, um, and I think he considers boring to be like low energy. It's like the yeah, big- and you know what? That formula worked for him. It's what killed off the 16 or however many other Republican candidates they were who were comparatively boring. It explains the rallies, which are pretty truth-free, you know. I'm going to have a tax cut for you before Election Day. Well, Congress doesn't meet before Election Day. Uh, I'm going to, you know, uh, I, I we're doing great on building the wall. Well, actually, the wall isn't being built. The list goes on. But he would say that his supporters don't take him literally. They take him seriously. And uh, that they understand that it's this directional conversation. Well, it seems to have had an effect on a gentleman in Florida. I mean, it sure does. It looked to me like his white van was covered in uh, in Trump stickers, and uh, I'm hearing some reports that he may have been, you know, at some of those rallies. Now, that said, uh, you know, there's the ongoing debate here is: did the president incite this, or did he just create the conditions that make it more acceptable? And I don't know the answer to the first. But certainly we have seen in time after time again, people citing the president after acts of either rudeness or violence. Uh, And when you look at the list of people who were sent the bombs, including this morning, Jim Clapper, and a few days ago, uh, 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 former CIA director uh, Brennan, John Brennan, um, what you see is a list of people who the president at various points have declared were not loyal to him, were part of the deep state, to uh, use a phrase that we pick up so often here on Deep State Radio, or who- It makes me very happy that we're too small to have a mailroom. That's true, that's true. Uh, But you know what? People are gonna begin inspecting those mugs you send out with much more care now. Yeah, well, no, that's, now remember, we're the good guys. The deep state (laughs) did really well on this, in fact, you know, listening to Trump today when he was commending uh, the FBI, the FBI <laughs> and the Department of Justice, he was practically gagging on it. Although I also noted that when he made the statement, which he, he seemed to be kind of disappointed about, um, you know, he didn't mention a single target of the attack. You know, funny was, that, um, you know, yeah, it was I like that's right. Some prominent. You know it, no it tells you how much our law enforcement and surveillance advances have gone for, for uh, in this case, good, but in other cases, ill. Um, since the Unabomber, think how long it took to track years to track down the Unabomber. And this guy was in days. Now, he was leaving a lot of digital dust, right? He was uh, being, you know, he was showing up on various uh, uh, video cameras in, in various places. I don't, he didn't well, show the Unabomber's care. Apparently, the the I mean, according to what I've heard so far, it was the old-fashioned way. He left a fingerprint on one of the envelopes. Yep, yep. And, you know, you have to tape those boxes or those envelopes um, closed, and that's usually the place where people will go and leave their fingerprints right off. Well, it's, it's, it's a kind of a dark moment. Let me, let me ask you one last question before we go, uh, because we've now gone, you know— uh, uh, six, eight weeks, six weeks, I guess, without anything going on in Mueller land. And 
No, that, we've gone six or eight weeks without anything we know about going on. In well, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly my point. And and you know, it seems like no matter what happens in the election, as soon as the election takes place, we're going to be in this kind of race. When do we get rid of Jeff Sessions? When do we get rid of Rosenstein? If one gets rid of Rosenstein, what happens to Mueller? When does Mueller act? You guys are all over that. What, what, what do you think is the most plausible scenario? Well, I think the first was, remember, it was only August when people said, Mueller's going to get all this done before the election and then shut down. And um, the only one who wasn't in on that um, brilliant strategy was Mueller, right? Right. Who could care less what other people think his timeline should be. So... Uh, he has been respectful of the Justice Department rule that you don't do a lot just prior, prior to an election. His most recent indictments really were of the GRU and the uh, the Internet Research Agency and, and so forth. So those were pretty bulletproof. It would be hard to get Republicans to make the case that he was acting in a political way by indicting a bunch of Russians. But that was very smart. I think the question after the election is, can the techniques that we saw that were so vivid in those indictments, where they had specific conversations that the Russians engaged in, does that then turn up in whatever conversations took place, if they did, between uh, members of the Trump campaign, people close to President Trump, uh, and so forth, are they able to go reconstruct those? And that gets to the question of whether you think that uh, Mueller believes he can prove a conspiracy or has enough to refer to Congress. You raise the interesting question, what happens to Rod Rosenstein? That's vitally important because in the end, whatever it is that Mueller does, he hands to Rosenstein. And it's up to Rosenstein to decide, does this go to Congress? Do we do a public indictment? Do we make it public? Can a Democratic House demand that it be brought, released to them? That's a really interesting question, David. Certainly they could subpoena a set of documents and so forth, but I don't know that they could demand that the Justice Department do a formal referral. I think that's within within the, the Justice Department's own rules. Now, the Justice Department could send the information to them with no recommendation, right? Right. But, uh, you know, and the big question is how much of this gets made public? And you have to assume that if it doesn't get made public, a good deal of it's going to leak. It may not leak right away, but, you know, at, <laughs> at least by the time it hits Congress, I would give it a, a, a leak half life of about 30 minutes. Well, yeah, I was just thinking, you know, it's kind of amazing the degree to which Mueller has maintained real tight control over leaks. For it's, it's astounding. And, you know, you didn't think it was possible to do in the modern day, but I guess it is. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a real lesson in that. I, I also remember, by the way, as you were talking, I was thinking, gee, it's, it seems like not so long ago, but it was a year ago that everybody was going to, everybody was saying, well, Mueller's going to wrap this up by Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. That's what they were saying. Um, I have my doubts. Um, 
he'd probably like to wrap it up by Thanksgiving. I think he has been very strategic in handing off some of the other cases to um, uh, prosecutors in New York and elsewhere. That's been a twofer. One is it's meant that he doesn't have to deal with the lingering dogs and cat cases that come out of his investigation. But it also means that if the president shut down the Mueller investigation, other parts of this live. Like the Cohen investigation. That's right. And in the end, you know, you've got to think that Cohen probably knows more and things of more value to the prosecutors than almost anybody else. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's just, you know, I, I think we're waiting with bated breath a little bit that we're going to get to the election. And normally you have election day and then you have an outcome and then it's see in January, not much is going to happen. But I got to feel. Yeah, well, that's not going to be the, the weeks between the weeks between uh, election day and Christmas. I think they're going to be pretty active. Right, because we'll we'll see cabinet people departing, including possibly Mattis, some Mueller activity, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to be kind of wild. Now, if Mattis goes, and I don't think he'll go willingly, I think he will say to the president, if you want to fire me, you're welcome to fire me, sir. That will be the last one of the original national security staff, if you think about it. He was, he's basically the last major national security figure standing who was, who came in when President Trump was elected. In, in their job, because Pompeo came into the CIA. That's right. No, in their, in their, in their current, in, in, in the job that they were initially appointed to. And when Pompeo came in, while I have no doubt that he was influencing the president on policy, because the president trusts him on these issues, um, he wasn't coming into a policy job. He was coming in as the CIA director. He's now obviously in a policy job. And I think he's going to last uh, pretty long and pretty well. But um, the endorsement of, uh, of uh, Secretary Mattis could not have been more uh, lukewarm the other day when the president said, well, he's kind of a Democrat, isn't he? Yeah, well, that, right. To call that an endorsement is very charitable. I think the the reality is that the axis of adults is is going to be over soon. That's uh, right. And you know what? I think, like so many other uh, statements, it did not withstand fact checking. There's nothing I know about uh, Jim Mattis that would make me think that he has many democratic sympathies with a capital D democratic. Yeah. Well, and there's also nothing much to indicate that the access of adults had that much of an effect. No, far less than we thought. Maybe some effect in year one, but but certainly by year two, they've been shaken off. I mean, Mattis himself publicly said, I would stay inside the Iran deal. Right. He, what, he didn't. I am not sure that Mattis was willing to go um, uh, stake out the hill to defend um, the INF Treaty. Uh, I think that he took pretty much the view that the president ultimately ended up adopting, which is we're not going to be the only ones uh, adhering to this treaty. Yeah, well, a lot to see. I hope I hope you're back on the on the mother pod sometime real soon. Um, uh, I plan to get back there soon. I've been traveling a lot lately in Silicon Valley and elsewhere trying to figure out what's been going on in are the you, elections. Are you promoting anything, a book? Any, I mean, I, 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 you know, there's this book that's still rolling around. Uh, people are occasionally buying it. Uh, I'm still talking about it in various places to the five people left in America who haven't heard the book talk yet. Would, would there, we could record it. 
and send it directly well, to them. We but, could, we, or you could put it on a chip and insert it in their brains. Yeah, nice idea, but yeah. that would be the perfect weapon, the, the book, not the chip, um, which is uh, uh, widely hailed as sort of the definitive book of its kind. And if you care about cyber, you care about the future of conflict, you care about national security, or you care about you know, the successor to Ernest Hemingway as the you know, avatar <laughs> of American prose, um, you got to get a copy of The Perfect Weapon. Um, and, uh, and we'll talk to you again real soon, David. Uh, travel safely. Thank you. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.